Hello, hello, and welcome to today's episode of Saddest Night Out. My name is Roy, and I'm the host of this daily podcast, which is all about my slow but steady ascent to the indie rock throne. I don't know, I'm still working on that line. It is Friday the 13th of November. I forgot it was Friday the 13th. I hope you have all survived at least long enough to listen to this episode. It is quarter past 10, and I am. it's Friday night, so naturally I am at home staring at my laptop. I've got Spotify open, and the f- people that I follow on Spotify that are listening to music right now, Whitney is listening to Omen by Disclosure, I'm Cyborg, but that's okay, is listening to I Don't Love by Have a Nice Life. Martin Young is listening to Positivity by Suede. Linnea Ponert is listening to Uncle Ace by Blood Orange. Jenna Million was just listening to Digital Boyfriend by La Bouquet. Who else was listening to music recently? Uh, Erica Campbell was listening to Light Me Up by Bronze Radio Return. Robert was listening to Blockades by Muse. Ebalo86 was listening to My Sacrifice by Creed and Toby. O was listening to 1111 by Baby Mother. I don't know. I quite like the idea of looking at what people are listening to as they are listening to it. A quick update on what's happening in the world. Well, in my world anyway, today. I have now got two weeks off from work, which I really, really want to do something with because I'm so good at saying that about a certain length of time. Like, okay, this month is going to be the month when I do X or Y or Z and then blink and the month's over and it's, oh, yeah, I never really got around to that. But this time, uh, we'll see. McFly released their first album in 10 years and I Young Dumb Thrills is what it's called. I listened to it on the way to work today and it's pretty good. It's very optimistic, very hopeful. There's a really good song on there about finally admitting to seek help, which which struck a chord. I discovered that Molchat Doma were apparently a bit of a TikTok sensation. They really became a bit of a YouTube discovery. I think I'm not the only one who found them that way. They just suddenly appeared in your recommendations. It reminds me of Boy Pablo. And they he had a song called Every Time, which suddenly was just in everyone's recommendations. I didn't I would not have put Molchat Doma and TikTok together, but hey. Anything can happen in this year, 2020. McDonald's and Waitrose have both released very effective Christmas adverts. I, From memory, the general theme seems to be... No, Waitrose is about helping others and how that, what can, that can lead to. McDonald's was about your inner child being suffocated by, I don't know, some kind of angst or misery that you're living in. But sharing McDonald's can rekindle that inner child in you and thus... The connection, etc. Blah blah blah. Very heart, very heartstring pulling, tear jerking, etc. But but pretty good. I guess we are in. It doesn't feel like it, but I guess we are in that season. And Kylie Minogue has the number one album in the country, which means she beats Little Mix. Although I have listened, I've rinsed that Little Mix album. It's sweet melody. Oh man. Oh, it's another episode. Anyway, the oh also yesterday's episode where I talked about me seeing. The Big Pink and the XX in Leeds, I've come to the conclusion it can't have been in October 2009 because I lived somewhere else at that time. So it had to be either early 2009 or winter 2008. And I'm pretty sure it was 2008 because it was while I was still new to being in university, being somewhere new. And clearly had absolutely no sense because if I had any, half of what happened that night wouldn't have happened. But I hope you enjoyed that episode. Today's episode, I'm trying to make this a weekly thing. It's another in the series that I'm calling A Personal History. And today, I am talking about LCD Sound System. 
Now, some of the really eagle-eared among you might recognise that the title of this podcast, Saddest Night Out, is a lyric from an LCD sound system song. It's actually today's song that I will put the link to, Beat Connection. LCD sound system and I, we go, we go way back. And my story with LCD sound system starts with Nathan, who some of you might remember from the Block Party episode. This is the same Nathan who got me to listen to Block Party. Nathan was the kind of guy who liked to walk on the track, the path less travelled. So everyone else had iPods. He had a Sony just absolute mega chunk of memory and music. It was the MP3 player that had a grid of buttons that represented different squares on the screen. So it wasn't a touch screen, but it was a touch pad that meant you were kind of touching the screen. Anyway, he gave me a whole bunch of music, and amongst that was disc two of LCD Sound System's debut album. That debut album, I believe, is self-titled, he says, as he's about to do some furious Googling to quickly remind himself of LCD Sound System's discography. Yes, the debut album is... LCD sound system. Disc one is the album, which has the single Daft Punk is playing at my house. Disc two has music that I think they released before the album, such as their first song. Well, I say their first song. The song, his first song, James Murphy. I'm going about this all wrong. But LCD sound system's first single was called Losing My Edge. And that is the first track on disc two, followed by Beat Connection. So Nathan gave me disc two of this debut album, which had, I guess you'd say, the seven inches, just the longer dance cuts that didn't quite fit onto the album. And that was my introduction to this band. Now, who are LCD Sound System? Actually, no, let me talk about the fact that when I first heard that, it was I liked the music. It's dance music, but played by a rock band. That's how it felt to me. In fact, on my Instagram, which is definitely buried in cobwebs at this point, I made an analogy, I think that's the term, a parallel between LCD Sound System of the early 2000s and Blondie of the 70s because in the 70s New York arguably gave birth to three genres hip-hop or rap disco and punk rock and then there was a punk rock band that made a disco song where the singer rapped over it the song was Rapture which I think was the first rap number one in the US technically speaking and of course the band was Blondie fast forward 30 years and my kind of what I think of as my primary colours of music influences that got me to really reconsider music when I was young. They are Kanye West when it comes to rap and hip-hop, Daft Punk when it comes to dance, and The Strokes when it comes to rock music, or punk music, or whatever you want to call it. And once again, we had a New York, arguably punk band, that made a disco song with a singer rapped over it, and the song is Losing My Edge, and the band is LCD Sound System. I enjoyed it. It grew on me the more I listened to this disc two of album one. And who are LCD Sound System? Well, they are primarily James Murphy. James Murphy is quite the figure in the early 2000s New York scene. Born in 1970, he released Losing My Edge as his first single under the name LCD Sound System at a time where... So at that time, he released it when he was 33 and or 32 and you're talking about a time when The Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, LCD, not LCD, ugh, Interpol, you've got all these bands that are getting big who are in their early to mid-twenties, maybe some of them teenagers. And here's a guy in his early thirties, only now kind of breaking through. James Mer- whilst all those other bands found success with what was essentially their first swing 
at the music industry pinata, they struck gold and there was nothing but candy coming out. Literally, the Strokes, first friends to play music, they were the, they played, the people in the band, the Strokes, were the first people that played music with each other. They weren't in a bunch of different bands and then this band. They were friends, they picked up guitars, they started a band called The Strokes and they took over the world in the early 2000s. James Murphy was in bands in the 80s. I think his first band was called Great. Oh, my words. Mainly so that when they went on stage, they could say, hey, we're great. He had another band called Pony. None of those bands really went anywhere significant. He was a sound engineer for Five Finger Satellite, I think is the name of the band. And it wasn't until he was was introduced to dance music that he started a music label called DFA, worked with one of those bands that got big at the start, and their start, a band called The Rapture. The Rapture left his DFA label to go to a major label. He had just signed with a publisher, and when The Rapture left, I think, maybe it was the label, but when The Rapture left, the publisher, or maybe label, said, we're still interested in DFA, what else do you have? And that's when James Murphy said, fine, I'll make some music, and thus LCD Sound System was born. So, you got a guy who already sticks out from the crowd and wears his insecurities on his sleeve let me make sure i'm sticking to my notes here james murphy was deeply steeped in the indie rock music world and this was a world where i have no recollection of being in this world because i was less than 10 years old but from what i understand a lot of people wore plaid i think kurt cobain was pretty much both the figurehead of the scene and I think because he got so popular, probably someone that you didn't want to associate with because it was all about being underground. And the more underground you were, the more real and authentic you were. And that was the world that James Murphy was in. A world where you'd go to a show and everyone would stand around with their arms folded to just show that they're really getting the music. And eventually James was introduced to dance music. He met Tim Goldsworthy, who was part of the British music group Uncle James always wanted to be cool, but never thought he was. Tim Goldworthy was like a card-carrying member of the cool club, according to how the story is told anyway. And he helped James come out of his shell. By the way, you should absolutely read the book Meet Me in the Bathroom because it goes through all of this in much greater detail and it's a really fascinating read. But essentially, James Murphy realised that with indie rock music at the time, it was all about posing and you couldn't... It was as if real success was to not be successful because if you were successful, you sold out. But with dance music, the purpose was clear because it was right there in the name. You make people dance. If you make dance music and your music fills the dance floor, you're doing something right. With indie rock music, if you the music you make, it's almost like you don't want people to dance to it. So, And you don't want to become successful. You want to keep sleeping on couches and touring in buses in in, like in vans rather you know what, what what are we really doing here but with dance music it was clear what you were going for you wanted to make people move so james murphy made dance music but he came at it from an indie rock perspective so when you listen to something like losing my edge or a lot of the music that came out on the dfa label perhaps the most striking element for me is that the drums sound rather dead and by that i mean if you hit a tom the tom kind of goes doom typically but with LCD sound system, it goes more like doom. It's just a duller thud. It sounds more like a rock band in a room making seven, eight, nine minute dance songs that build and collapse and 
feel like they have more of a narrative to them instead of just feeling repetitive. I used to think dance music was just eight bars of music looped for about 10 minutes and you only enjoyed it if you were on drugs. Apparently drugs played a part in James Murphy seeing the lights with dance music, but I could enjoy his dance music without feeling as though this is meant for the club. It felt like it was meant for me, someone who was, funnily enough, also kind of steeped in indie rock music by their own merit anyway. Oh, where was I going with this? So... That's a little insight into James Murphy. Now, I can heavily relate to this perspective that James Murphy is coming from as someone who is also about about the age that James Murphy was when he first released music as LCD Sound System. There's a really good interview which on it's on YouTube and it's literally titled Interview with James Murphy of LCD Sound System about how to deal with failure. And he talks about how he was just very he felt like in his 20s, he was a just a failure, a real abject failure. He just did nothing with his 20s. And I think on some level, I read a bit too deeply into that and thought, you know what? Your 20s don't count. You can just fail through them. And then in your 30s, you can make it or whatever. He dropped out of college to make music, but then he wasn't really making music. So he was just around. And I thought that he really did nothing with his 20s. But that's not necessary. I definitely did not. I feel like I did nothing with my 20s. He didn't really do nothing with his 20s. He was in bands that didn't quite go anywhere. And then he was a sound engineer for the band Five Finger Satellite. I really think that's their name. I'm going to just do some subtle Googling while I keep talking to you. But essentially, he was building transferable skills. He was learning how to record, learning how to produce live music, learning how to produce just in general. So even though he wasn't one of the bands that was being talked about, he was still building some, building a reservoir that he would later use in his future works. So he meets Tim Goldsworthy, unlocks the call within him, and then starts a label. And I think throughout this, there's a chip on his shoulder. He sees all these other bands making it, and I think there's a part of him thinking, that's they're not really doing much that's very different to what I was doing, yet somehow they've they've cracked the code and they're making it big. And I didn't manage to do that. Let me just make sure I'm sticking with my notes here. Found his 20s, transferable skills, dropped out, stop making music, friends. Yeah, when he turned, he says in this interview about failure that when he turned 26, that's when he really decided to try and change things. He was looking around and thought, I used to be the youngest in the crowd, like the, the ingenue. He was, I think, 16 in a band full of later teens and early 20s and he was the one to watch and now suddenly he was one of the older ones in the group and just felt like his moment capital m moment might have passed but he decided to just get proactive about it he says that he decided to get engaged with culture he says 90 percent of most people suck but there's a good 10 percent out there that is your tribe those are the people that you could form a connection with and make something happen with. So he actively sought out to find that those 10%, and that's when DFA was born. Now, you also had a thing about the book Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. He said, oh, David Foster Wallace, I think, was about James Murphy's age. And James thought, that's a really amazing work that he's done there. If I, James, started now, I couldn't get that done the way he's gotten it done. And I, I my biggest guilty person for doing that with is Daniel Radcliffe who plays Harry Potter because he's literally one day older than me and his life is could not be more different than mine 
And I've definitely been guilty of looking at him and thinking, oh man, that, that could have been me, blah, blah, blah. Another person is Matty Healy from the 1975, who was born the same year as me. So it was Taylor Swift, 89. But I can relate to that thinking of, oh, someone my age has done the thing that I wish I had done. And you just sit there with your feelings of, well, now what? So he got proactive. He started a record label and he found his band, The Rapture. And I think at the time he thought, all these other bands that are making it, I'm going to turn the rapture into the leaders of those bands. They made that seminal first song, House of Jealous Lovers, which is just an absolute dance punk classic. And then the rapture signed with a major label. So James Murphy was without his golden egg. But he had signed with a publisher, I think I mentioned this about 10 minutes ago. I don't know. It's Friday night. The publisher he had signed with, or the label he had signed with, that worked in partnership with him, said, well, we're still interested in you, so what else do you have? So he said, fine, I'll be the band that becomes the thing. I can play all the instruments, I can record all the instruments. If I don't do this, then it's an absolute, it's shame on me, essentially. So that's what he did. And he recorded the first song in essentially one take. He just did all of the drums straight through. The lyrics came out in one take. That song is Losing My Edge. And it is a fantastic encapsulation of what I really enjoy, one of the many things I enjoy about this band. That when it comes to their his songs, lyrically, there's often a conflict and a clear perspective that he's coming from. My very dismissive stereotype of dance music is, you know, everybody dance, have a good time, go out and party, blah, blah, blah. Here he is, his first song, and he's he's addressing the elephant in the room, which is that he's much older than everyone else. And he feels as though he's past it. What, rather than waiting for someone else to say, you're past it, he's addressing it right there in the first song. He's losing his edge. And I think it's a fantastic summation of where we were at a time in culture where his whole thing was that when he was younger, he had to go to the record store and find the band and discover their background the hard way. And now he lives in an age where someone could have that entire... where he might have spent years trying to find each album because the vinyl was out of print or he had to import it from this country or hunt in record stores. He's now in a, among people who can just download the entire, that artist's entire discography like that and have it all in the disc right there. He'd go out and hunt the 7 inches and the 12 inches and the vinyl to DJ with. Someone else would just plug in their, iP- their iPod and have all of those same songs there. They didn't put in the legwork that he put in. And he sounds like someone who comes from the background where... You pride yourself on your esoteric knowledge of music. I went out there and I found that rare B-side. Have you done that? No, therefore I'm cooler than you. But now people can have that knowledge somewhat artificially. So what does that mean for you? Does that street credit even mean anything now? If you had to hunt for years to find that album and everyone else can find it at the click of a button, where does that leave you? What does it mean to be you? There's no real answer to this. And this is what he addresses over seven minutes of awesome guitars and drums. And it's just a really, and it's a really heady topic to address, but it's not chin stroking music. It's dance floor filling music. And that conflict, just what the conflicts of opinions, the clear perspective of where he's coming from and just where do I fit in and all this. And the fact that all of this is is laid over a really danceable song. It just works so well. And by the way, apparently... The person that really was the linchpin for him writing Losing My Edge was Pharrell Williams because James Murphy used to pride himself on picking particularly niche songs to play as a DJ between bands or something 
And then he came across Pharrell, who was essentially doing the same thing, but was much younger. I think he was much younger, I'm not sure. And I think that sent James into this spiralling existential crisis, out of which we got Losing My Edge and all of LCD Sound System. So thank you, Pharrell, for that. And when you listen to LCD Sound System, they've got four albums. The first is self-titled LCD Sound System. The second is Sound of Silver. The third is This Is Happening. And the third was meant to be the last album. And they had a last show at Madison Square Garden, which was like a four-hour bonanza. They just played pretty much their entire discography. It was live-streamed on Pitchfork. I watched it live. Apparently, Donald Glover was there, and he crowd-surfed at one point. Susan Sarandon had a great time. All the if you, Anyone who was anyone was at that show, and that was meant to be the end of the band. I'm kind of jump, leapfrogging to the end of it here. But then they came back and made a fourth album called American Dream, which came out in, I want to say, 2016. So I'm going to say 2016. As if I don't have the internet right here. It came out, yeah, I think 2016 is when it came out, and 2009 is when This Is Happening came out, and when the band ended in 2010. But then six years later, they came back with American Dream. Now, the first album, Losing My Edge, was a bit of a runaway hit. I don't think he expected it to be that big of a success. In fact, he talks about in this great interview the fact that all of his friends thought Losing My Edge was rubbish, but he liked it. And he had one friend that liked it, so he went with it. It turned out to be a bit of a runaway success, and he had to form the band LCD Sound System so that they could perform his songs. At first, he was just putting music out, but particularly in London, they said, we'd love you to come and play. So he was like, okay, I guess I better get a band together so I can play these shows. He even says himself that LCD Sound System, the band, is essentially a cover band for his songs. It wasn't like he got a band together and they started writing together. He engineered the whole thing himself then the demand was there for live shows and then it was like okay let me get a band together and play these shows and that was a debut album it's a bit roughshod but it's a really engaging and enjoyable album the second album sound of silver is where he he said he had a revelation i i figured it out the second album just has to be way better than the first and really really good which sounds flippant a bit obvious well why wouldn't it that's exactly what you obviously go for but he was a bit more focused in his intentions. He looked at... He, I can't remember what interview he says it in, because I've watched a lot of his interviews, and I highly recommend watching them, because he's a really interesting speaker. He's really good at actually articulating where he's coming from, and his perspective is quite unique. There's a lot of artists I'm watching now, their interviews, where they they seem to end all of their sentences, all of their sentences with or whatever. They They always seem to have one foot in believing what they do and make sure they have one foot out in or, or whatever, you know, it's, it's not that serious. It's just, it is what it is. But James is committed to what he's doing and will talk to you at length about it. In one of his interviews, he talks about how Sound of Silver was him taking square aim at all of the bands who were above him in the festival lineups. He was looking at the the, the Strokes, the Block Parties, the Interpols, the Franz Ferdinands, not in a mean way, but just in a, okay, James... I start, you started this whole thing as a bit of a outlier because you're way older than everyone and in your own mind you're past it, but here you are. So now let's really go hell for leather and make the album. And Sound of Silver is definitely that album. Perhaps, I think my three favourite songs are and probably the, no, four most popular songs. Get Innocuous, which is the opening song, which really obviously references The Robots by Kraftwerk, but if you haven't listened to Kraftwerk, you'd never know that. You just think it's a cool song. 
And it, if someone tells you, oh, like I just told you, check out The Robots by Kraftwerk, and then you'll listen to that and realise, oh, wow, James Murphy really borrows from that. But it's not as if James Murphy ripped it off. It's almost as if he's acting as a tour guide for all the cool music that he put in the grunt years to discover the hard way. And now he's trying to introduce you to it through his own songs. It starts with Get Innocuous. There's a song called Someone Great, which is about, I believe it's about the loss of his therapist, who was also a big turning point when he turned 26 and decided to get his life together. There's a song called All My Friends, which is like the big one when it comes to their live shows. And then the last song is called New York, I Love You But You're Bringing Me Down, which is a fantastic piano ballad. This is the album that ended up on a lot of end of decade best album of the decade lists. He did what he set out to do and now they are very much a festival fixture and they pretty much headline any festival they play. It's a really good album. This Is Happening kind of cemented that and he talked about how he really felt his age and recognised how much of his life gets taken out each time he goes in the album cycle. So he, I believe what he did with the when he did his last show at Madison Square Garden, a movie was made about it and just the band in general and the fact that it was ending here. And in the Q&A for that movie, he talks about how he wanted to book Madison Square Garden for the tour for the third album, This Is Happening. And the people at Madison Square Garden said, uh, do you want to be partnered with another another act like Big Boy from Outkast? Because they didn't think James Murphy and LCD Sound System could sell the tickets to warrant playing Madison Square Garden. So James, almost in spite, said, I bet we'd sell it out if it was our last show. And thus it was decreed. LCD Sound System at Madison Square Garden would be their very last show and then the band was over. Three albums, three classics, and done. And I believe, he says, that he never planned to do that and then come back. It just felt natural to end it and then it felt natural to come back. I reckon it was planned. I used to think that in a spiteful way, that he's pulled one over on us. But now I think... Maybe it wasn't planned, but in my own mind, I like to think it was planned because before he just, he announced it was the last album, it was another album. A great album, a great band, but it was another album. Once it was announced it was the final album, then you start already talking about their legacy and everything they've done now has a heightened importance because you believe it's coming to an end. So you're looking back, at, you're already looking back at it at, wow, look at what they did rather than looking at it as, yep, another album, and it's great. What else is out this week? And thus, Sound of Silver rode high on many end-of-decade lists. Deservedly so. Whether it would have been the last, whether it was going to be the last album, whether the third album, This Is Happening, was always going to be the last album or not, Sound of Silver very much deserves the accolades it received. And then the last show was April 2nd, 2010. And then The Strokes, actually, I think he wanted to play... Once he saw the demand, he wanted to play, add another night, but the strokes got April 3rd, 2010. And the writer Lizzie Goodman said she saw that as a bit of an end of an era of the, the 2000s decade with New York. Two of the biggest acts to come from that 2000s New York scene sold out the, the biggest venue in New York, Madison Square Garden, and that was what inspired her to make the book Meet Me in the Bathroom. 2015. LCD Soundstone announced that they are coming back. James announces he's coming back. He worked with David Bowie. David Bowie passed away. And he, while working with David Bowie, he talks about how he's got he's coming up with new music. He's not sure what to do with it. And I think I might be very wrong here, but I think he asked David Bowie for advice and David Bowie said, does it make you uncomfortable? James said yes. And then David Bowie said, then you should definitely do it. 
Like, you should embrace the discomfort. I might be completely wrong with that. But basically, he worked with David Bowie. David Bowie passed away. James Murphy came back. And there's a real weight to that newest album, American Dream. There's a song on there called How Do You Sleep, which after reading Meet Me in the Bathroom and understanding the story of James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy, the other guy who started the DFA record label with James, and seeing how they came together and then very much fell apart, that album, that song, How Do You Sleep, has a new weight to it. Understanding how much the loss of David Bowie affected James Murphy, some of the later songs on the album have a new weight to it as well. I say that rather loosely because I can't remember what the track list for American Dream is, so I'm going to do some Googling. One of these days I'll just say I'm going to do some Googling instead of singing it like that every time. I think the song Black Screen was very much inspired by the loss of David Bowie. But James Murphy knew that it's because he had called time on LCD Sound System and now come back. He better come back with something good, something worthwhile. And they absolutely did. I saw them play at Field Day. I can't remember. The same year I saw Phoenix, whatever year that was. I can't remember what year it was, I can't bother to look. But I saw them play that and it was fantastic. My favourite song on that album, I think, is Tonight. I don't know when their next album's going to come out. I don't think... I think a lot of people's schedules have been messed up by this whole 2020 year. But the impression was very much that he will continue to make music. Like, he's... I don't think American... Maybe American Dream is going to be the last album, but he's learned from the last time he said it's the last album to not announce that it's the last album and just let nature take its course. Now, let me get back to my notes to try and sum this whole thing up in a way that makes sense. That's my music as I try and speed read what I've written down and figure out where I was going with all of this. So, where does that leave us? What did they mean to me? I The song that I'm putting on... Actually, no, yeah, that would be the best way to sum it up, with the song that I've chosen for today's song. So LCD Sound System's breakout hit was their first single, Losing My Edge. That song he wrote in pretty much one burst, where he just got all of his thoughts out about how he felt with the current generation where he sat with it. Before that, he had worked on this song, Beat Connection, for almost a year. Tweaking it, different tempos, different bass lines, different drum sounds. Just really procrastinating about finishing it. Something I can very much relate to. And up until the last minute, Beat Connection was going to be the A-side and Losing My Edge was going to be the B-side. But at the end, he said, no, Losing My Edge should be the first thing people hear. Let me die on that sword if necessary. And thankfully, it was a hit. But Beat Connection, lyrically, talks about, and a lot of what I've said about James Murphy, touches on how I felt, just curmudgeonly and disenfranchised with the capital C culture that's happening in your moment. All the signs are saying, this is the hot new thing, this is where it's at, and you just find yourself thinking, "Uh, I'm underwhelmed, it doesn't feel like the good stuff. I think the good stuff has already happened, and this just feels like, the echo of the echo of the echo of the good stuff, whatever the good stuff is. But at some point you have to really gird your loins and say, no, I know that the good stuff isn't over. That's just some fable, some idea of concocted. There will always be good stuff out there. You just have to go out and seek it and discover it and claim it. Or, worst case scenario, you have to be the one to make it, which is why I started saddest night out i found myself thinking ah 
it's just not as cool as it once was you know and it's literally like the lyrics to the song beat connection which i am furiously i really shouldn't say googling i should say duck duck going because that is the search engine that i use i am pulling up the lyrics to the song beat connection and i guess i have to search beat connection lcd to find them here we go and i've mentioned these lyrics before because it's definitely an episode i've done where i talk about the name of this podcast Everybody And nobody's falling in love, everybody here needs a shove, and nobody's getting any touch, everybody thinks that it means too much, and nobody's coming undone, everybody here's afraid of fun, and nobody's getting any play, it's the saddest night out in the USA. And someone wrote that it is James Murphy's expose on the ultimate meaningless of endless nights out, full of nothing but emptiness. It's a candid, if a somewhat depressing, look at the nightclub culture at its nadir at its lowest. That's from Genius.com. I can very much imagine that's where his head was at. And that is what he was trying to rally against in starting DFA. Hello, Dirk Bart, who's just come on to Spotify and is listening to In Undertow by Marika Hackman, which is a cover of... I think it's a cover of Warpaint. I can't remember. Maybe not. Anyway, don't know why that distraction distracted me. What was I saying? Yeah, the song Beat Connection. That lyric right there, it sounds pretty throwaway. It works in the context of the song. But it's a um, mentality that I find that I feel can easily become a default. If you go with gravity, you end up thinking this way, which is that everything sucks. Nothing is as good as it used to be. Especially this year, where everything's in lockdown. You can't even go to live shows anymore. You can very much feel like, what's the point? And I can never underestimate how much it means to see James Murphy's story and the fact that he rolled up his sleeves and said, no, I'm not going to let that be how this story ends. I'm going to write my next chapter the way I want it to be. He talks about when he met Tim Goldsworthy and started the DFA label, that James Murphy grew up near New York, but not quite in it, so it felt you know, a million miles away. And Tim Goldsworthy was in London, so he, of course, wasn't really in New York. But they both had this idealised I- version of New York in their minds. And when they came to New York, they were a bit dissatisfied with how it actually was. So they decided to create the New York that they thought ought to exist. And that's very much what I decided to do in starting this podcast, what I'm trying to do with my music, and wider, which I'll go into at some point. But I love that idea of just, no... I'm not going to accept that this reality is it because I find it disappointing. So I will create my own reality through force. I will go out and find that that 10% of people who I can connect with and build something with. I'll help lift them up. They will help lift me up. And we're going to leave our mark. Even if it's just for ourselves, we're going to make the thing that we think should exist. That's what I really take away from LCD Sound System and James Murphy. I cannot recommend enough watching the interview, any interview with James Murphy, because he's so academic in his thinking and in his explanations. It's always worthwhile hearing him talk. I have seen them live a few times, particularly at Reading Festival when they played after CSS, Can Say to Say Sexy, I want to say 2006. And when CSS played, they finished with Let's Make Love and Listen to Death From Above, which by the way, DFA stands for Death From Above, 
but he came up with that name because he used to do sound engineering and he would, was notoriously loud. But then 9-11 happened and he thought Death From Above was a bit inappropriate, so he just called it DFA. But CSS played Reading 2006, brought the house down. All my friends, we all found each other in the NME tent, moved to the front. LCD sound system came on. Some people around us wanted to start a mosh pit, I think ironically or as a joke. We turned it into a dance pit. It was the dance floor. And about an hour later, I, realized, I said to a friend and realised, you know what? I don't think I've looked at the stage once this entire time. I've just been dancing the whole show. That's that's a feeling I really hope to replicate when I get to get back on stage and actually make something of the music that I make. Because it's just so much more enjoying to just lose yourself in the music and have fun with your friends than to be crushed together just staring at the stage and watching someone do what they do. Especially in this age where before 2020... The most common sight at a live show is people holding up their their phones, their tablets and filming what's happening. And there's always that same old cranky old man saying of, oh, people aren't really living in the moment. They're all just filming it, etc. And no one's going to watch the videos. I can't thank enough all the people who used to film stuff at shows because now that you can't go to any shows, boy, are those videos welcoming on YouTube. So I will never again think a negative thought about someone filming a show. I'm all for it. But... When you can find a performer who plays the type of music that makes you forget you're in a crowd watching something and you just go with it, it's a feeling like no other. And I felt it again when I watched the live stream of their last show. It was at like 1am in UK time. It was four hours worth. but And I was just sat at my computer in my dorm room at university by myself. But I somehow still felt that feeling of being in the dance floor with everyone and just forgetting the stage, forgetting everything, and having a great time. He is very deliberate about what he does. There's a meaning behind it. And I think his matter-of-fact approach about that makes it more meaningful to me than artists who sing those kind of life-and-death songs about I love them and they don't love me back and they broke my heart and all that stuff. Because he doesn't really write that type of cliché love song. His, he is a lot more frank about what he talks about. And I think it hits me that much more because he talks about it in that matter-of-fact way. I really like the story of James Murphy. I used to enjoy blaming him for making me waste, in my mind, waste my 20s, guys. I was just following his example a bit too heavily. I used to hold it against him that, no, you planned to stop after three albums and then come back because you knew it would generate more attention. I don't think that's actually the case. He actually got on Facebook and apologised to people who were upset that he came back with a fourth album because they said, no, you said you stopped after three. I went to that last show. It really meant something. Now it feels meaningless because you're back. And him being such a big fan himself of music in general, he could relate to that feeling. So he apologised. He had absolutely no reason to. But he did because he understands where we're coming from because he's that person. That's where losing my edge came from. You can't write losing my edge and fret about the fact that you finding all of this music the hard way is now something that people can do much easier. You can't ponder on that quandary unless you are such a big fan yourself. I wish I was building up to this one final statement about how important or great LCD sounds to are. I'm not. I just really enjoy that band. I really enjoy James Murphy. And today's song is going to be Beat Connection by LCD Sound System. Are you a fan of LCD Sound System? Do you have a story about how you discovered them? Are there any bands you can recommend who sound like them? Because, you know, I'm open to suggestions. And hey, if you want to find me on Spotify or Twitter or anywhere online, just search for Saddest Night Out, all as one word. 
and let's add each other on Spotify so that I can tell people what you're listening to while I'm recording my next episode. Thank you very much for listening. And I will catch you on the next one. Two weeks off from work. I will definitely do something with that time, he says. Maybe. Uh, okay, I think... How long is this episode now? It's definitely over 20 minutes. 40 minutes! Oh, it's been a while since I've done an episode this long. If you're still listening, thank you. You're my bestest friend. I like you the best. But don't tell the other folks who stop listening after 10 minutes. Enjoy your weekend, and I will catch you on the next episode. Take care. Okay, look, I know I ended the episode, but I just thought of one more thing. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but in my podcast episode where I've talked about a bunch of other podcasts I like to listen to, one of them was 2020, a pop culture podcast. They did an episode about the movie High Fidelity, which is a movie about someone who owns a record store and really prides themselves on their taste in music and judges others on their taste in pop culture. And I posted a tweet asking what that character from that movie would think of LCD sound system. Because James Murphy, to a certain degree, fits that caricature as well, of being that snooty record store clerk who says, oh, you're buying what album? Oh, that's not cool. You should listen to this stuff instead. But you're not cool enough to know about it, or something like that. Just that, you know, very dismissive and negative stereotype. And I wondered what would the character from High Fidelity think of LCD sound system? And what I arrived at is that they would probably like the band but get sick of them because everyone would make the joke that this high-fidelity character is essentially the subject of the LCD Sound System songs. That song, Losing My Edge, through the lyrics, James Murphy kind of jokes about how he was there when all of the bands he loved first started. So he was there when Can started. He was there when Captain Beefheart started. He, of course, wasn't there, but he's just trying to add some weight to the fact that he actually went out and found the albums. He didn't just download them on iTunes. So he takes it to the extreme and says, oh yeah, well, well, I was actually there when those bands started. And I made the joke that the guy from High Fidelity would be talking, going on another speech about how this artist is really important, or this band is really important, or this album's really important. And he'd be constantly met with the joke of, oh, because you were there, right? Because the song Losing My Edge was about him. Uh, This felt like a good idea to add to the episode at the time, but now I... Well, here we are. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.